Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and this week I have a quick and dirty tip about whether you need a hyphen in the word ebook. A meaty middle by Neil Whitman about really weird sentences that are still grammatical. And finally, a tidbit by Neil about the word minion and how its meaning is changing. Ebook stands for electronic book, the same way that e reader stands for electronic reader and email stands for electronic mail. The AP style book the BuzzFeed Style Guide, the Economist Style Guide, and the Chicago Manual of Style all recommend hyphenating ebook, as well as most other e-words, such as e-reader and e-commerce. It's conceivable that, over time, ebook may lose its hyphen. Both the AP Style Book and the BuzzFeed Style Guide already recommend spelling email without the hyphen. But for now, the hyphen in ebook is safe. Continue to include it. And that was your quick and dirty tip. Next, I have a meaty middle by Neil Whitman about sentences that are correct, but are almost impossible to process. A few episodes back, in one of the tidbit segments, we explained the so-called buffalo sentence, a grammatical English sentence composed entirely of the word buffalo. Today, we're going to cover some other kinds of sentences that are in perfect compliance with English syntactic rules and don't use meaningless jargon or buzzwords, but are still all but incomprehensible. Let's start with an example of a very complex sentence that's nonetheless easy to understand. Listen to this verse from the nursery rhyme, The House That Jack Built. I got this version from Wikipedia. This is the farmer sowing his corn that kept the rooster that crowed in the morn that woke the judge all shaven and shorn that married the man all tattered and torn that kissed the maiden all forlorn that milked the cow with the crumpled horn that tossed the dog that worried the cat that chased the rat that ate the cheese that lay in the house that Jack built. This single sentence contains 14 clauses, but it's so easily understood that it's a poem that people memorize and recite to children. It's easy to understand because every chunk of meaning that comes along can be easily added to the existing meaning. To illustrate, let's start with the first clause. This is the farmer sowing his corn. Then we come to an adjective clause describing this farmer. It starts with, that kept the rooster. 
We don't need to hear any more to know how kept the rooster fits into the overall meaning. The farmer kept the rooster. But the adjective clause doesn't stop there. It goes on. That crowed in the morn. Again, we don't need to hear any more before we can fit that crowed in the morn into the bigger picture. The farmer kept the rooster, and the rooster crowed. The adjective goes on still further. In fact, the entire rest of the verse is all part of one huge adjective clause that begins with that kept the rooster. Inside it, there are noun phrases and smaller adjective clauses describing those noun phrases, and so on. But if you diagram it out, it's all one long-winded adjective clause that ultimately relates a lot of information to the farmer. Now, though, think about that final noun phrase, the one that's also the title of the nursery rhyme, "The House That Jack Built." The adjective clause here, that Jack built, has a subject, Jack. So we can't fit the house into this clause yet. We have to wait to hear the verb built, and then we know how the house fits in. It functions as the missing direct object of built. In other words, this final adjective clause is an object-oriented adjective clause. All the others were subject-oriented. If we try to string together fourteen object-oriented adjective clauses into one big clause, it's impossible. Even doing it with just three is enough to leave most of us scratching our heads. We'll start with the rat that ate the cheese, but instead of focusing on the rat, let's focus on the cheese and say the cheese that the rat ate. Now let's talk about the cat that chased the rat. But instead of focusing on the cat, we'll focus on the rat, and say the rat that the cat chased. Finally, let's do the same thing with the dog that worried the cat. Instead of focusing on the dog, we'll focus on the cat, and say the cat that the dog worried. So far, all the object-oriented adjective clauses are easy enough to get. But now let's put them all together, step by step. Step one: This is the cheese that the rat ate. Step two: This is the cheese that the rat that the cat chased ate. And step three: This is the cheese that the rat that the cat that the dog worried chased ate. That last step is where I completely lose track, even though I know what the sentence is supposed to mean. It gets even worse if I take out the reflexive pronouns. Although I can make sense of "this is the cheese the rat ate," the sentence "this is the cheese the rat the cat the dog worried chased ate" ugh sounds like a disconnected series of noun phrases and verbs. The adjective clause begins right after the cheese, but you have to wait until the entire end of the very end of the sentence to hear "ate" before you know what the rat did to the cheese. Food writer Michael Pollan has used the same kind of hard-to-process nested adjective clause in a couple of his books. You're probably familiar with the saying "You are what you eat," but Pollan takes it to the next level. If you eat animals, then you're eating things that also eat.
Or at least they did before they were killed to become your food. So by the transitive property, if you eat animals, you are what those animals eat. This is the thought that Pollen expresses in a section title in his book, The Omnivore's Dilemma. You are what what you eat eats. What what? Eat eats? Pollen's example isn't impossibly difficult. It's just difficult enough to force the reader to stop and think about what Pollen is saying, which is what he wants the reader to do. By the way, Pollen isn't the originator of this quotation. I also found it on page 80 of the 1985 novel Dreams of Sleep by Josephine Humphreys. I was inspired to create our final example of a grammatical sentence that's nearly impossible to process after reading a discussion thread on the Grammar Girl LinkedIn group. One person posted a grammar riddle. What's a sentence with because three times in a row? Here's the usual answer to the riddle. In the dictionary, apple comes before because. Because because begins with B. Now, in my opinion, that's a rather unsatisfying answer. Two of those becauses are just mentions of the word because, not actual uses of because. I'm going to create a sentence that actually uses because three times in a row by using the ability of because to begin a sentence. Let's imagine a chain of events. The event that starts it all is an act of aggression. Sandy hit me. Our first sentence with because says what happened next. I hit Sandy because Sandy hit me. The next event comes when mom finds out what I've done. Mom praised me for standing up for myself because I hit Sandy because Sandy hit me. She doesn't praise me for simply hitting Sandy. She praises me for hitting Sandy in revenge. The last event comes when Dad hears about the whole affair. Dad told Mom two wrongs don't make a right because Mom praised me for standing up for myself because I hit Sandy because Sandy hit me. At this point, the sentence is uncomfortably long, and it sounds like someone trying to blurt out an entire story as quickly as possible, before someone can interrupt. Even so, it's understandable. Now, let's turn it into gobbledygook by simply putting each because clause before its main clause. Step 1. Because mom praised me for standing up for myself, because I hit Sandy, because Sandy hit me, dad told mom two wrongs don't make a right. Step 2. Because, because I hit Sandy, because Sandy hit me, mom praised me for standing up for myself, Dad told Mom two wrongs don't make a right. Step 3. Because, because, because Sandy hit me, I hit Sandy, Mom praised me for standing up for myself. Dad told Mom two wrongs don't make a right. Again, black. Sentences like this because, because, because monstrosity, and you are what what you eat eats, and this is the cheese the rat the cat the dog worried chased ate, are good reminders that just because something is grammatical doesn't mean it's good writing. It's almost always a good idea to read your work aloud to see how it sounds. 
That piece was written by Neil Whitman, who has a PhD in linguistics and blogs at literalminded.wordpress.com. Remember the frustration of trying to memorize vocabulary and grammar rules only to find you couldn't actually use the language in real life? Well, there's a better way to learn. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program with millions of users learning 25 different languages, and you can get it on your desktop or as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone immerses you in many ways with its intuitive process. It's really different. You pick up the language naturally, first with words, then the phrases, and then with sentences. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Grammar Girl listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Is it rosettastone.com slash grammar. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash grammar today. Hey, it's Mignon. Do you need a new literary show to add to your podcast queue? Well, then you definitely want to check out Missing Pages, the chart-topping and Signal Award-winning podcast produced by the Podglomerate. Back for a brand new season, Missing Pages investigates the most pressing topics in the book world today, from the rise of Colleen Hoover and book bans across America to the world of ghostwriting. Not to mention host and acclaimed literary critic Beth Ann Patrick interviews some of the biggest names in the industry, like New York Times bestselling author Jody Pico and Publishers Weekly co-editorial director Jim Milliot. And as the Washington Post and The Guardian said, missing pages is a, quote, must listen. And I agree. So don't miss out. Follow Missing Pages today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now. Hey, it's Mignon. If you want to do more to hone your communication skills, then check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by the Stanford Graduate School of Business and hosted by my friend and Stanford lecturer, Matt Abrahams. You may remember Matt from his interview on the show back in September when he shared his top tips for becoming a better writer and speaker. Think Fast, Talk Smart is his Webby award-winning podcast, which has been downloaded 41 million times and has been the number one career podcast in more than 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Whether you're making a wedding toast or presenting at work, strong speaking skills are critical to success in business and in life which is why Matt sits down with experts every week to talk about the best tips to unlock your communication potential. Hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, speechwriter and bestselling author Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. So what are you waiting for? Listen to Think Fast, Talk Smart, every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. And tell Matt I said hi. Finally, before we get to our tidbit, I want to thank you and ask a favor. First, thank you for nominating Grammar Girl for Best Education Podcast in the Podcast Awards. I'm excited to be nominated, and it's a huge honor. 
And now, to win, I need your vote. If you visit podcastawards.com, you can vote once a day between now and March 24th. Let people know you like the Grammar Girl podcast and help other people find the show by voting at podcastawards.com today. I'll put a link in the show notes and thank you. And now, here's your tidbit about the meaning of the word minion, also written by Neil Whitman. For most of my life, the word minion, M-I-N-I-O-N, has meant an evil underling. But recent events in pop culture are changing the meaning of minion. Now it can refer to underlings that aren't evil, or evil things that aren't underlings. The first development came with the release of the movie Despicable Me in 2010. The minions of the evil genius Gru were an entire species of sponge cake resembling gibberish-speaking aliens that were just so cute that they couldn't possibly be evil. These creatures have become such a hit that for today's children, Minion probably just refers to the Despicable Me Minions. The meaning of evil things that aren't necessarily underlings comes with a card game called Smash Up, which came out a couple of years after Despicable Me. In this game, teams of monsters compete to win points, and each member of a team is known as a minion, even the highest-ranking member of the team. But where did the word minion come from in the first place? And how did it come to refer to a lackey who does a villain's dirty work? According to the Oxford English Dictionary, minion was borrowed from Middle French in the early 1500s from a word that meant a lover or someone's favorite. Later, it lost the meaning of favorite and just came to mean a follower or an underling. The story doesn't end there, though. The word was borrowed again from French into English in the 1600s, this time as an adjective meaning small, delicate, and graceful. This time, it kept its original spelling, M-I-G-N-O-N, and it's pronounced somewhat differently as mignon. And I'm Mignon Fogarty, and that was your cute tidbit for the week. And in case you're wondering, I'll add that I was named after a flower called the mignonette. It was my great-great-grandmother's favorite flower. She named her daughter Mignonette, and it became a family name and got shortened over generations to just Mignon. Thanks again to Neil for writing that second piece this week. It's midterm week, and boy, do I appreciate the help. That's all. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Mignon. If you want to do more to hone your communication skills, then check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by the Stanford Graduate School of Business and hosted by my friend and Stanford lecturer, Matt Abrahams. You may remember Matt from his interview on the show back in September when he shared his top tips for becoming a better writer and speaker. Think Fast, Talk Smart is his Webby award-winning podcast, which has been downloaded 41 million times and has been the number one career podcast in more than 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Whether you're making a wedding toast or presenting at work, strong speaking skills are critical to success in business and in life, which is why Matt sits down with experts every week to talk about the best tips to unlock your communication potential. Hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety. 
speechwriter and bestselling author Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. So what are you waiting for? Listen to Think Fast, Talk Smart every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. And tell Matt I said hi.